grateful that everybody's here. Uh, while you're finding your seats, I want to remind you about the Connect cards that are in front of you. Uh, we would love for you to fill those cards out. You can drop them in the collection baskets that are up here on the stage. You can put them in the collection box that's next to the resource wall. Those cards are there for us to know how we might be able to pray for you or serve you uh, as of late. So please fill those out, members, uh, regular attenders, even you visitors. Uh, they're, again, a way for us uh, elders and the staff to engage with those cards and know how we can uh, serve you or pray for you. So please fill those out. You can do it in the middle of the sermon. It won't bother me. It'll just look like you're taking notes. So please do that. Uh, I also mentioned uh, the resource wall. So all of those books over there on that wall are free. We want you to take those books. We want you to utilize them. They're a great supplement to uh, what we have in God's Word. The more we know about God, the greater love we will have Him. Think of anything in your life that you care about, you understand it. You work to understand it. So we love Christ. We're called to love Christ. So we also should be called to know it. We want the people to know God's word. So feel free to take those books, read them, process them. If you want to give them away, that's fine. But we hope that you, you utilize that wall as it is there for all of us. All right. Well, let me pray for us and we will get into our sermon. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of salvation. Thank you for the work that your son accomplished on the cross for us. I pray that today in this time where we look into your word, that you give us great assurance. You help us to understand really what you have done on our behalf. Father, I pray that it, it builds faith in us. If there are some of us here who don't have faith yet in Christ, I pray that today is the moment where you quicken their spirit and that they turn and repent. Lord, it is the most glorious gift and the most freeing thing that can happen in our lives here on earth, Lord. So I pray for that. I pray for great worship uh, to happen today. Lord, I trust you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, we're going to be preaching through chapter 2 of Colossians and verses 11 through 15. So Colossians chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. So if you would, please open your Bibles there. If you're going to use one of the Bibles in front of you, it's page 425. Of course, it'll always be up on the screen as usual, but we want you to open your word because we want you to know where to find this word. So Colossians 2, verses 11 through 15. And while you're doing that, I want to remind you about last week and what I said. Last week, I mentioned that the, um, uh, the remaining verses of chapter 2 are sort of like this long argument or long exhortation from Paul for us to be faithful to what is true. Therefore, we're going to be continuing on with that same discourse. We're going to be talking about the second part of Paul's exhortation to this Colossian church about why they don't need to listen to false truths. All right, he's, he's positively encouraging them. He's exhorting them to follow and be faithful to Christ and in turn leading them away from listening to the false truths of the world. So let's go ahead and read our passage. And if you would stand with me in reverence of God's word, if you can, we're going to be reading again, Colossians 2, 11 through 15. This is what it says. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's got to have a seat. Let me pray again. Father, thank you for this 
opportunity for us to hear from you. Thank you for your word that we can go and that we can engage in a relationship with you on a daily basis. I pray that we do that, that we seek you by reading your word as well as communicate with you through prayer. Father, I pray that you make us a church about the ministry of prayer and the word. Lord, we trust you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen. So throughout this letter, as we've been studying it now for a couple weeks, throughout this letter, Paul is consistently providing this young church, again, with these positive truths about Christ as a way to build them up, uh, as a way to build them up into what is true. In fact, we hear the same sort of um, discourse, the same sort of talk from Paul in the other letters that he's written to the other churches, because Overall, he wants the church to be about building up one another in Christ with his truth, right? He wants to preach Christ and Christ crucified and nothing else. And to be honest, I find that very refreshing as I read the Bible. Paul calling us to encourage one another with Christ's truth because with Christ's truth, because people, not just in our time, but really in all of time, seem to find it easier or maybe more satisfying to get what they want by manipulating people with what they're doing wrong. It seems simpler to oppress someone or to, to, to weight down someone by continually telling them all the things that they're doing wrong instead of doing the good work of building into each other a hopefulness of being fulfilled in Christ. A disposition, if you will, to borrow a a term from last week, to abound in thanksgiving. But that is what Paul is doing. He is causing this positive building up for the church and us as we look into this truth. That is what Paul is doing. And in these five verses, Paul does speak the truth. He doesn't uh, turn away from what's real. He doesn't turn away from reality. He speaks truth about this young church because he knows this young church. And he knows this young church because he knows the human condition without Christ. He knows who we all would be without Christ. He also knows what this young church needs to know or remember about Christ, about who he is and what he has done for them. That is how we are encouraged. That's how we have our hopefulness and our thankfulness. Now, what we need to recognize is that Paul isn't just flattering these people. All right? He's not just uh, uh, trying to simply gratify them with empty platitudes or uh, pithy memes. Maybe that's our kind of tendency in the way that we communicate these days. That might be what we're prone to do when we want man's approval more than God's approval. Instead, again, Paul is honest about their condition. He is truthful about, again, who they were without Christ. He's truthful about who Jesus is and what he has done for them, what they needed him to do for them. All right, so let's get into it. Now, for our passage today, I'm going to chop it up into three sections. I'm going to chop it up into three parts because right after Paul tells the Colossian church in verse 10 from last week that they have been fulfilled in Christ, that is, they are complete in Christ, he then gives them and us three examples of Christ's completed work on our behalf. In him, There is complete salvation, that's verses 11 through 12. There is complete forgiveness, that's verses 13 and 14. And then there is a complete triumph, and we'll see that in our last verse, verse 15. All right? Now let me reread verse 11 through 12 so we can understand our completed salvation. It says this, "...in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ." 
having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Okay, so remember, Paul is building from what he just said and about how this church in turn and everyone else uh, who is established in the faith has been made complete in Christ. He just said that. And now he says, in him also comes these truths about our given salvation, all right? So we are complete, and now this is the truth about our complete salvation. And to explain this, Paul uses three well-known rituals, or rather two well-known rituals. He uses circumcision and baptism. So let's look at both of them. In verse 11, Paul starts with talking about circumcision. The question, though, is why, all right? He's talking about salvation, but he uses circumcision, Why would he do that? Why would he bring up circumcision? After all, this church is a church, if you remember, that is mostly, uh, on the whole, uh, comprised of Gentiles, right? This is a Gentile uh, church and city. And circumcision is a Jewish ritual that is conducted by a rabbi who cuts off a piece of flesh from a male that is meant to identify that male as being part of the covenant family of God. Now, We're not really going to talk a whole lot about circumcision or the the actual details of it, but these people in Colossae understood. They they, they knew what circumcision was. They would have been familiar with it. The question is, why? Why would Paul bring it up? How does it apply to those who are Christian and not Jewish? If it's a Jewish ritual, how does it it matter or what what is he trying to get them to comprehend as Christians and not Jewish? Why did Paul bring it up now? Why did he bring it up now when he actually hasn't even addressed it, this topic at all so far in this letter? Now, I suppose it could have been an issue that they were dealing with, okay? We know that there's false teachers in the church. It could have been an issue that they were dealing with. There is a chance that those false teachers at Colossae were pushing for circumcision to be sort of a necessary part of salvation, just like the Judaizers uh, did in Acts 15, but I don't think so. And here's why. Instead of, uh, there's, here's, here's why I feel that I, that's not the case. There's no real evidence that this is what was being peddled, right? We don't really have the truth or the, the full knowledge of what was being uh, told is, or, or taught falsely. We don't have all of that. But, uh, so there's not really a, an idea that this was being peddled. So there's not a good reason for Paul to suddenly add it into the letter. If he had been talking about it a whole bunch, it would have made sense for him to address the topic. Instead, I think Paul brings it up because of its familiarity among the people. They knew what circumcision was. They understood that it was a Jewish ritual and rite and tradition. So he brought it up because of its familiarity. It could be that he brought it up so he could show them again that they didn't need something extra to possess salvation. He's not so much trying to to bring about a deeper understanding. He just wants to show them that they don't need anything extra for salvation. All they need, or for that matter, all anyone needs, is faith in Jesus, who is the Christ. He is the promised Messiah that is in the Old Testament, right? They have the Old Testament writings. The New Testament was actually being written at this time. They have the Old Testament. They know that now Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the Savior who saves But we also need to understand that our salvation does happen through the cutting away of something. 
So when you think of circumcision as a cutting away of something, our salvation does happen through the cutting away of something. The physical act of circumcision that we understand from the Old Testament was meant to be a shadow of what Christ does for us spiritually. All right? And the way that Paul explains this is by telling them and us that this kind of circumcision is done without hands. Now, a quick side note, the people at that time, the people in Colossae, would have understood Paul's reference. They would have understood what he was getting at about this work being done without hands because it was understood, again, because they had the Old Testament text, it was understood that the false idols of the Old Testament were made with hands. That is, they were made by human hands, those idols of wood and metal and gold. They were crafted by men with their hands. So when Paul says that this work is done without hands, what he's telling them is that this is only done by God. This salvation that we're talking about, this circumcision of the heart is only done by God alone because it can only be done through the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit. That's what he's communicating Again, the physical act of circumcision was meant to be a shadow of what Christ was going to do and now has done for us, his people. As well, this circumcision that Christ will do, has done, and can do for you, again, is not physical but spiritual. The prophets who spoke for God in the Old Testament, they knew this, right? They, they, were, they were communicating God's word. The prophets who spoke for God in the Old Testament, they knew this. Moses talked about it in Deuteronomy. He he talked about it in Deuteronomy, and we called it a circumcision of the heart. Ezekiel also talked about it when he told about how God would cut out the heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. This putting off of the body of flesh that Paul is talking about is our spiritual conversion. This is what Paul is talking in our way of our salvation and our forgiveness. He's talking about our spiritual conversion. He's talking about how we've been transformed at a heart level. Again, only by the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit. Our old self, all right, who we used to be, our old self, our past sinful nature has been cut away so we can now live in him. It's been cut away by Christ. Our old self has been cut away by him so we can now live in him. Which is why then Paul moves to talking about baptism. Now, I'll read it uh, so you can remember what he said. Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the power working of God, powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. Michael Bird says, the instrument of baptism is faith in the operation or works of God. And I like that because baptism is also not a means of salvation. The instrument of baptism is faith in the operation or works of God because it's not a means of salvation. All right? Now, it's not a means of salvation, even though some still today actually use this passage to teach that. People still use this passage to teach that idea. So let's just take a moment and think about that argument. Could this passage be saying that we need baptism for salvation? Is that what Paul is saying? I don't think so. And here's why. 
If Paul, on the whole, as we've been talking about, if Paul, on the whole, in this letter, has been arguing against adding anything to Christ, why would he now then add baptism to it? You with me? If this whole discourse about Christ is enough, Christ is all we need, why would he now add baptism to it? Now, here's where I think the confusion comes in, or, or why this confusion happens. It happens when we don't know that the, the word baptism is used in the Bible both figuratively and literally. It's used both ways. Jesus was literally baptized or immersed underwater by John the Baptist in the Jordan River, but we are figuratively baptized with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection at the time when we are literally baptized today. Our baptism, when we put the tank out here and fill it with water and dunk people, that uh, baptism is a metaphorical picture that displays the spiritual experience that has happened to us. All right, you with me? What that means and what Paul is talking about, and when we talk about the literal and figurative baptism, what he's talking about is our spiritual union with Christ. Whatever happened to Jesus Christ happened for us at the moment of our salvation. When we are given complete salvation, whatever happened to Christ has been done for us at the moment of our salvation. Warren Wiersbe explains it like this. When a person is saved, immediately he or she is baptized by the Holy Spirit into the body of Christ, that's 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13, and therefore identified with the head, which is Jesus Christ. This true circumcision of the heart and real union with Christ happens at the moment of our salvation. At the very moment of salvation, it's such a great and wonderful gift. It is glorious and so good and amazing. And it's accomplished or completed by Christ's work on the cross, which is what provides us with complete forgiveness. Our salvation is immediate through his work on the cross. It is done, it is accomplished, it is complete as well. This is how we are given complete forgiveness. Look at verse 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross." Paul is reminding this young church that they were considered, they would be considered completely spiritually dead because they were lost in sin. You would be considered completely spiritually dead as you are lost in sin. They were relationally thought of as a person who was uncircumcised. Do you remember what that means? That would have devastated the people of Colossae. It would have meant that they were separated from God. There would be no hope of relationship or union with him. Therefore, they would have no hope for salvation. That's what Paul is getting at. This is why this is so important. But then Paul says something that for me is, is just overwhelming. When you really think about the gospel, it's, just, it's absolutely overwhelming. And it took me some time to even try to find the words to articulate this. Paul says that while that was true of you and me, God gave us his life and completely forgave us of everything. Everything. I mean, everything. It's overwhelming. Now, that doesn't mean, or rather, what, rather what that does mean, if you're sitting here wondering, 
What does everything mean? It means everything. It means what you do, you are forgiven of. Whatever you have done, however times you have done it, you can be forgiven in Christ. This is the very real reality that we all need to come to grips with. We are not who we are meant to be, and we can all feel it. Intrinsically, we can all feel that we are not who we are meant to be. We don't even live up to our own standards. And I believe that that feeling comes from the fact that we, again, are in, we inherently know that this world is not our home. It's not how things are supposed to be. Something is wrong. It's also the reason why we endlessly search for meaning. It's the reason why we indulge in vices. It's the reason why we get lost in entertainment. It's the reason why we try to fill our lives with stuff. It's the reason why we are so easily lured into listening to or following after half-truths or self-indulgent advice. But listen, the reason why this world has gone wrong is because we have transgressed. The world is broken. And it's difficult, but the reason why this world is wrong is because we have transgressed. We have sinned against the God who created all things that we love to worship instead of Him. But this is also what God is so willing to completely forgive us of. All those things that I just listed and the the things that came to your mind when I said you could be forgiven of everything and anything, God is also willing to completely forgive you of that. Now, there are legal demands, there are expectations that God has for us, and he must, otherwise he would no longer be just. And those demands are his laws. He did tell us how to be perfect, he did tell us how to be righteous, and if we followed them, we could be with him. But none of us here have ever even come close to that standard. So our reality, like the Colossian church without Christ, would be death, would be separation from God. Our reality is also death if it weren't for Jesus, who is the Christ. You see, he went to the cross. He is the one who went to the cross and paid the penalty that we deserve to pay. Paul here says that he canceled our debt and all its legal demands. He's talking about the law. He figuratively nailed them to the cross, which means that it can now never again hold a claim over us, that we have died to the law. We live under grace now because of Christ. He is the one who perfectly fulfilled what we needed to fulfill. He is the reason why we have the opportunity to have union with God and be reconciled to him and adopted as his sons and daughters. But this glorious news is only for those who find themselves alive in Christ. Without Christ, you're as good as dead. This is only good, glorious news for those who find themselves alive in Christ because Jesus is the only one who has completely triumphed over Satan's sin and death. He's the only one. Verse 15, he he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Other translations say by triumphing over them through him or by triumphing over them in it, altogether meaning he was triumphant in his death on the cross. This is when the victory was won. He triumphed over uh, all of that in his death on the cross. And that means for anyone who is in Christ, for those who have yielded their life to him, we no longer have to fear. Fear what? You ask, 
We don't have to fear anything. That's the reality. Jesus literally disarmed the prince of this world, which is Satan. John 12, 31 says that in his death, he has cast him out. Revelations 22 says that Satan is bound. Satan thought that he won the cosmic battle when Jesus died on the cross, but that was actually God's triumphant victory over Satan in that moment. Because in his death for sinners, Paul here tells us Satan's power was removed. We no longer have to fear his power to intimidate or to control people through the threat of death or even separation from God is over. It's over. We talked about how we no longer have to wonder what the, 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 the secret to eternal life is. It's the mystery is in Christ, how he dwells within us. We no longer have to wonder if Satan has power. No, it's over. Christ defeated him on the cross. Remember, we, we talked about that back in uh, last week in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. He came into this world and took on flesh and blood. That's like you and me. And he lived our life and he went to the cross and died and defeated both Satan and death. Now, that is glorious and good news, but there is still a spiritual struggle that we all also feel, that we all continue to feel, that will go on until Jesus returns because both realities are true. We have complete salvation and we are being sanctified. Our, uh, the, Christ has won the victory and there is still a time of consummation. But Satan's power or Satan's opportunity to completely confuse the nations has been taken away. Because now we know, as we look at the whole scope of the gospel, now we know it's not just one individual nation who is God's chosen people, but anyone who has received Christ Jesus the Lord. It's anyone. Any tribe, tongue, or nation, anyone in the world can come now in faith of Christ and receive what is the inheritance that is promised to Jesus, the one and only Son of God. That is the gift that we have in the gospel, in the good news. Anyone through faith in Christ can experience, understand, and receive this glorious transformation in Christ. Anyone can experience, understand, and receive this merciful pardon by Christ. And anyone can be brought into this inclusive victory that is Christ. That is the good news. Now, again, we instinctively know that we are not how we are created to be. We know that we are still being sanctified. We are not who we are created to be. This world is not the way it was created to be, but one day both will be made right. That is, that is the promise of the gospel. That is the promise of God's word, that one day all things will be made right. Christ will return and make all wrong right. But until then, Maranatha, we need to encourage each other to hold fast to faith. Hold fast in faith and hold on to one another because we need both. Our faith is what saves, but we remind each other of that faith each on a daily basis as we live together. We need both because our old sinful nature is not yet fully removed. We still do sin. It's 1 Corinthians, or 1 John, rather. Which is why... As we've been given faith and we've been given a union with Christ, in that he has also given us each other to be that encourager, to be the uh, admonisher, the, the exhorter, the, the one who, who champions each other and encourages one another and reminds one another that the chains of the evil powers that once enslaved us have been broken. 
The chains that have enslaved you, the sin that you continue to, to go back to time and time again that you can't seem to find freedom from, those chains have been broken. You no longer will or have to choose sin. You can choose Christ. The chains have been broken. They are broken because of what Jesus did on the cross. And because of his resurrection, we no longer need to fear anything else. The work that he has done on the cross has freed us from the imprisonment of sin. And because of his resurrection, we no longer have to fear anything, including death. As well as we no longer need to turn to the world for satisfaction, for temporary satisfaction. Jesus took our place and position before God by becoming sin. And at the same time, he allows us to live just as he does. A great question as you go out and share this truth, you can ask somebody, what is Christ doing right now? It implies multiple things. He's working and interceding for us, but he is also alive. You can then immediately share about the resurrection. Christ allows us to live just as he does. We have been freed to live and follow Christ as we walk in the power and guarantee of the Spirit. That is the gift that Paul is trying to get this church to understand. Maranatha, we also need to understand this passage is about our assurance what we have in Christ. It's not based in the sincerity of your faith. It is based in the finished, completed work of Christ. If you would, please pray with me. Father, we love you and trust you. We thank you for the promises. We thank you that we have your word, Lord, because our faith is fickle. We are not always as... Our faith is not always as vibrant and as alive and is easy to grasp hold of as some other times. So Lord, as we ebb and flow in our emotions, help us to rely and reside in your word of truth. Let us remember what is right and true, even as we sense the brokenness in ourselves and as we watch the world around us. I pray, Lord, for our church. I pray that we together, that we stay and remain united as we walk this out and be an encouragement and an edifier, a building up of one another as we do this together, imperfectly, but to your glory, Lord. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the work that he's done on the cross, that he came in the flesh and did for us what we couldn't do. Lord, you're good to us, better than we deserve. We honor you and we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.